This podcast is brought to you by Touch a Life. Welcome to Happy Homes and Gardens. I am your host. My name is Daphne Royce. I am a real estate broker, architecture, and interior designer. Electric cars has been a very popular choice in California in recent years. A few U.S. states has mandates requiring all new cars to be zero emission vehicles after 2035. Jerry Pohorsky is Silicon Valley chapter president of Electric Vehicle Association. Let's welcome Jerry to share with us his insights. Hello, Jerry. Hi there. Welcome. Please tell us what you do and how did you become involved with Electric Vehicle Association? Okay, it's kind of a long story. I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version.、Um, there's a lot of problems in the world today, and the one that I focus on is air pollution. I want to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. Whether you believe that global warming or climate change are a result of human activity, there's no denying that humans cause air pollution. If you recall, recently during the pandemic, when people were shut down and、uh, nobody was driving on the roads, all of a sudden the skies became crystal clear. And then after they allowed people to go back to work again, they got smoggy. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't even see the hills on some days, especially now with the wildfires. And you know that that's another issue. But we'll just stick with the air pollution for now. So, what is、uh, the causes of air pollution? Well, there's multiple sources, and the one that I focus on is using fossil fuels to power our vehicles. And solving this problem is a huge endeavor that takes a lot of people making a coordinated effort. There's only so much that one person can do, so there's many groups and organizations that have been formed to tackle this problem. One of those groups is the Electric Vehicle Association. I joined that group when it was called the Electric Auto Association. About 20 years ago, and、uh, we had a meeting, and the former president of the Silicon Valley chapter announced that he was moving out of the area and looking for a replacement. <clears throat> so nobody else raised their hand. So I volunteered and I became the president. What does the Electric Vehicle Association do, and why you change your name from Electric Auto to Electric Vehicles? Excellent question.、Um, In a nutshell, we're a nonprofit organization that promotes the wider adoption of electric vehicles in general and electric cars in particular.、Uh, we're sort of like a car club in some respects, where we display our electric cars at various public events around Earth Day and other times throughout the year. We've been invited by、uh, companies on their health fairs to come and、uh, display vehicles and you know give presentations. We hand out literature and we have、uh, paid members. That receive a monthly newsletter, colorful PDF,、um, and then there's some videos associated with that. And then、uh, we have free local chapter meetings here in the Silicon Valley、um, that are either in person or、um, online via Zoom. And、uh, we have a website that we can mention at the end. <clears throat> you probably have the first hand informations. Do we have alternative zero emission vehicles other than electric cars? Yeah, we do, and、um, the one in particular、um, that seems to be getting some attention is the hydrogen fuel cells, and、um, really, those are electric cars too. They have an electric motor, they have a small battery, 
And the main difference is instead of a large battery that moves the car along, they have a fuel cell that uh, burns hydrogen and emits water and um, oxygen, I guess. Or, or water vapor is the main. Uh, it uses oxygen from the air and hydrogen from a compressed tank, usually in the trunk, and then it, it, it puts water vapor on the ground. And I actually drove one of them, and um, I was told to press a button on the dashboard so the water comes out on the road. Because if you don't, it'll come out in your driveway, <laughs> kind of like when the air conditioning sometimes leaves a little water in your driveway or in your car garage or whatever. So um, there's um, other vehicles that I've heard of where they kind of use mechanical energy, like, you know, winding up a coiled spring. But those things only go for a few minutes and they're not practical. We had our first electric cars in 1967. Why does it take so long to develop electric cars? Let me uh, um, mention that it was actually much earlier than that. In the late 1800s, they had electric cars. And in uh, New York City, in the year 1900, one third of the cars were electric. Um, there were other cars that were steam powered and then there was some gasoline powered cars. So one third of them was electric. The steam wasn't really practical. It took several minutes to build up a head of steam. And um, so those didn't catch on. Um, the electric cars were very popular, especially among women. Um, the reason for that is that in order to start the motor, you had to crank it with a, a hand crank that was usually in the front of the car. And occasionally um, the motor would backfire and the crank would spin the opposite direction of the person that was trying to crank it. So it could actually break your arm if you didn't let go in the nick of time. So uh, women didn't like that. <laughs> and um, they also had kind of a smelly exhaust. They didn't like that either. So um, the thing that kind of turned it around. Oh, by the way, the electric cars at that point in time, they could only go about 25 miles on a charge. And they would have a top speed of maybe 25 miles an hour. So they were good inside in New York City. But if you wanted to go between cities, they, they would be kind of slow. And then um, there weren't really any places to charge the batteries um, along the road. So within the city, you could charge them and uh, you'd be OK. But out in the wild, um, you know, between New York and New Jersey, for example, you know, it, it didn't work. So, um the thing that actually made the um, electric car kind of fade away and the gasoline car to become more popular was an electric starter motor. There was an engineer named Charles Kettering who um, worked for a company called Delco, which is part of General Motors. And he took an electric motor and he used it to crank the gasoline motor instead of having a hand crank. And then he had a little button on the dashboard that would energize the electric motor. And then when the gasoline motor started, you know, you let go of the button and then uh, it would run. And women love that. <laughs> Push the button and away we go. Um, and then you can go a longer distance. And then, you know, they would have uh, refueling stations to get more gasoline. So you could go longer distances and faster. So um, within a few short years, the electric car kind of faded into oblivion. And um, the reason it's taken so long is because when the first car I had was in, um, it was uh, kind of built in 1967, but I didn't actually get mine until 1999. Um, and um, it was a GM EV1 that I had. And it was a kind of a spaceship looking car. It looked like it was from the Jetsons. <laughs> 
And um, it had um, batteries in it. They were lead acid batteries, similar to the starter batteries that gasoline cars still have today. So those 12-volt batteries, I had 24 of them in the car. And they would take the car um, maybe as much as 80 miles if you drove it really slow. If you drove it freeway speeds, it'd be more like 40 miles. And the energy in those batteries was the equivalent energy of one half of a gallon of gasoline. Gasoline has a lot of energy per gallon compared to the batteries. So uh, the reason it took so long to get an electric car was because of all the technology that had to develop to be able to come up with batteries and the motor and all the electronics uh, associated with that to be able to go reasonable distances on a freeway speed um, with, you know, just the batteries. So it's always the battery, stupid. <laughs> That's a very interesting story you tell us. How about batteries? How many type of batteries we have today? I would say, in a nutshell, too many to mention. Most okay. of them are not worth mentioning because they're kind of laboratory experiments with different chemistries, and they don't turn out to be practical. Ever since I've been in the Electric Vehicle Association, they have had uh, presentations from companies that make batteries, and usually they're kind of in their um, prototype stage. So they come to our meeting, they show what a great battery they're having, and they get all our hopes up. And then somebody says, well, when can we buy one? And they said, well, it'll probably take about five years. So five years later, we contact the company. Um, yeah, we had some problems, so we'll be ready in about another five years. So um, right now, the lithium batteries are the ones that are the most popular, and we don't have to wait five years. Although they did take many, many years to get to the point where you can run an electric car, they first started showing up in uh, the batteries on a computer where it maintains the, the day and the time. So when you turn the computer on, it knows what day it is and what time it is. A little lithium battery in the computer lasts 10 years, and it's about the size of a quarter. So uh, that was kind of like the first uh, practical lithium batteries. I think they also used them for hearing aids and stuff like that. But um, as time went on, they were able to make them larger and larger. And then they started powering cell phones, laptop computers, um, CD players, uh, digital cameras and stuff like that. And then they evolved even more and they can make them bigger. And finally, they come up with some battery in, um, you know, the year like 2000 or so. Well, actually a little before that, let's say 1997, they came up with a battery that was suitable for use in a car, like the one that I had, the, the GM EV1. And it would take that car, you know, the lead acid battery, they claim it would take it 80 miles. And then there was a Russian guy named Stanley Ovshinsky that came up with a nickel metal hydride battery. They had them already for, you know, cameras and phones and stuff like that. But something suitable for a car, he made them out of sheets of material that he would roll on a press. And he, he automated the process and he had his company named after him. It was called Ovonics after Ovshinsky. So um, General Motors bought that company because this guy was spending money faster than he could earn it. So when GM bought it, he got a whole bunch of cash and he was happy. And then um, later on, there's a movie that talks about the demise of the GM EV1. And at that point in time, GM uh, sold that company to Texaco. And then Texaco didn't do anything with it, and they were acquired by Chevron. Chevron said, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got these batteries, but if you try to buy one, they said, uh, well, we don't really have any stores available, and we don't sell them any other way, so um, put your name on the waiting list, and we'll get back to you. Uh, nobody ever got any batteries out of Chevron. 
But what Chevron did was there's a licensing agreement that um, they had with uh, Panasonic. And Panasonic in Japan was making a nickel metal hydride battery that eventually was also used in the um, EV1 and also a Toyota RAV4, which is what I have now. So they said to Panasonic, um, you're not paying enough royalties for this patent that we have. And we're going to increase the amount that you have to pay. And Panasonic said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've made some improvements. Why don't we do a cross-licensing agreement? You can use our improvements and have access to our patents. And then we'll be even Steven. Well, Chevron said no. <laughs> so there was a big uh, lawsuit and um, it ended up in court. And the, and the final outcome was sealed. So nobody really knows. But my observation is that the batteries that I had in my car... They have a, a rating, a, a power rating of 95 amp hours. And since that um, court case was settled um, and the, the results were sealed, um, Panasonic has never come up with another um, a nickel metal hydride battery greater than 30 amp hours. And a lot of those are used like in the Prius still and, uh, you know, other applications where you don't need a big battery to drive the whole car for a long distance. But um, the, the thing that kind of made that all irrelevant was the lithium battery. Lithium batteries have more energy per pound or per you know cubic inch or whatever than the um, nickel metal hydride battery. So they have pretty much dominated the battery market right now. And it's taken a number of years and they evolve at about 8% per year in terms of uh, the price going down and the amount of energy storage going up. And so um, now we have cars that can go, you know, 500 miles on a charge. Starting lithium battery, yes. will we ever run out of resources? And if a lithium battery can last 10 years, are they recyclable? Would that make any impact on the environment? Yes, um, they are recyclable and backing up about, you know, will we run out of lithium right now? Um, There's a lot of lithium mining going on in China and they don't have an EPA over there. So people say that's kind of a dirty thing. And it's true. It's, it's not a real pretty site. And then um, there's a um, area in Nevada that they found a huge lithium deposit, but it also happens to be Indian burial grounds. So the Indians don't want their ancestors' tombs to be, you know, uprooted to get at the lithium. So that's sort of in court right now. There's a um, saltwater um, lake, I guess you could call it, in Southern California called the Salton Sea. And it's got extremely um, heavy amounts of salt in it, which also has a lot of lithium dissolved in the water. So there's a project going on now to um, somehow um, get the lithium out of that saltwater. And they claim that will make a huge difference. There's other states in the United States that have lithium deposits and, you know, companies are kind of jockeying for position to put mines in and so forth. And there may be some new technology that gets developed that kind of replaces lithium. I keep getting emails about that, but it's all kind of like, well, buy this stock. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't think so. Anyway, um, I digress. Uh, so I think lithium is it for now. And in terms of recycling, there's one in particular company I'm aware of. The guy that used to be the chief technical officer for Tesla, a guy named J.B. Straubel, Stanford grad, he um, left Tesla. And he started a company up in Nevada called um, Redwood Materials. And what they do is they take any lithium battery, electric toothbrush, cell phone, um, cordless drill, 
um, batteries from electric cars, uh, computer batteries, um, all sorts of stuff. And they basically grind them up and then capture the various chemicals. Not only there's lithium, but there's uh, nickel and uh, cobalt and other things that he's able to recover. And so when the batteries um, eventually, I think the standard is 80%. So when the electric car battery degrades to about 80% of its original capacity, it won't go as far, but it'll still go. But it's time to quote unquote replace it. So at that point, you'll get some fresh batteries and then the old ones can be recycled. So that way we get back all of those materials. And um, that's probably as good as mining in terms of the quality of the material, although it is a little more expensive right now because the process is kind of um, uh, complicated. <laughs> well, at least that's wonderful news. Yeah, there's actually a rotary club in Los Altos that partnered up with uh, Redwood Materials and they had local um, kind of a one of those days where you can drop off all your lithium powered devices that aren't working anymore. Um, I've been trying to get a hold of them to see when the next one is, but I um, haven't heard yet. Do you know whose electric vehicles has the longest distance per charge right now? Yeah, the one that seems to be gathering the most attention is one called Lucid. It's spelled L-U-C-I-D. And ironically, um, the building that they have where they're doing all their R&D is in Newark, California, next to Fremont. And Fremont is where Tesla has their big factory. And the guy that uh, started Lucid was the guy that designed the Tesla Model S. And so now they got something called the Lucid Air. And it's a kind of a pricey vehicle, but then the Tesla Model S was pricey also. So it, it's a nicer looking car in a, a lot of people's opinions. And um, they've got several models available. The top of the line model, I think is over $100,000, but it will go 500 miles on a charge. So that's kind of like the one that's gathering a lot of um, you know attention. There's another um, vehicle that's kind of in development. They've got some prototypes. It's a three-wheeled vehicle. Technically, it's called a motorcycle, but it looks kind of like a spaceship uh, or an airplane without wings. And a company is called Aptera. They're down in the San Diego area. They've been around for about 10 years, and they kind of went bankrupt. I think they had a partnership with Ford for a while, and then... Uh, the original founders bought it back from Ford recently, and they've improved the design of it. And they've come out with a um, solar panels that are on the front hood of the car, on the roof of the car, and on the tailgate of the car. Not the tailgate, well, hatchback, I guess. And so it's covered with uh, solar panels. And they say if you leave it out in the sun all day, it can capture as much as 40 miles of driving range. But it's a very super aerodynamic car, very light. It's made out of carbon fiber composites. And um, it's only a two-seater side-by-side, only holds two people. But it does have some cargo space. And you can actually put a tent on the back of it and camp in it if you want. They've got a picture on their website showing the tent trailer in, uh, or the tent part of it in a, a park somewhere. Anyway, so they claim that um, one of their versions, not the one they're coming out with uh, first in 2024 sometime, they say they'll be making them available. They're taking deposits. They have a huge list of people that have already spent the money to get in line. And so that car um, will, I think, have around 400 miles of range, the one that they're coming out with in 2024. But they're working on a longer range one that they claim will go 1,000 miles on a charge. Now, between you and me, I can't drive more than about an hour or two before I need to stop and use a restroom somewhere. So having a thousand miles of range is a questionable um, um, goal, but I guess they're going to try to make a name for themselves that way. 
Well, not if it is a self-driving car, right? It's not self-driving, but there are some self-driving cars out there.、Um, Google years ago started a division called Waymo, and so they've got cars running around in Phoenix. I think some of them are actually minivans. The first car was kind of a little cutesy two-seater, and、um, so they've been driving around. I see them on the road periodically. And、um, then there's other car companies.、Um, GM has got one、um, called the Cruise, and they, they kind of got a lot of negative publicity in San Francisco because sometimes they would just stop in the middle of an intersection for no apparent reason. And、uh, I guess there was、uh, one time the fire truck was trying to get through, and the car was blocking the、um, intersection. And <laughs> this is insane. The、uh, solution that Cruz proposed to, when they have a situation like that is to get an electric saw and saw the roof off of the car and tow it away. You know, it's kind of like that's your solution. Why don't you just program it to get out of the intersection? That's my opinion. They should have a button with something, right? Just push yeah, a button、something. and just yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they sent somebody out half an hour later to get in the car and reboot it. You know, but half an hour for a fire truck to wait that's on an emergency call is unacceptable. And there's some politics going on in the city of San Francisco about、um, allowing self-driving cars to operate, what hours they can operate, whether they can charge money or not. And I think Cruise originally they had to run only at night and only for free. But I'm not sure what the latest is. Apparently, the the city council is a little more.、Um, Lenient about what they can do than the citizens are. The citizens are more upset about it, and now they got protests going on. They take these orange cones and they kind of put them there in front of the you know sensor to kind of confuse the car.、Uh, let's talk about charging stations. Okay. Can we unify the charging port to have one style fit all? There is a charging standard that was、um, developed by the Society of Automotive Engineers (SAE), and、um, they gave it a number. They call it J, which stood for like joint because they had a joint meeting with all these groups. So it's J one seven seven two seventeen seventy two is how people tend to pronounce it. J seventeen seventy two, and、uh, in our club we just call it the J plug. So that is on every electric car.、Um, Except the Tesla, so、um, all the Ford cars, all the GM cars, all the Toyota cars, all the Nissan cars—they all have the J plug. Tesla has a special plug that、um, has, you know, fewer、um, pins in it. It only has two pins. The other ones have five. And、um, so what what has happened is Elon Musk said, "You know what? I've got like eighty thousand charging stations, and I'm adding more every day, and only Tesla people can use them." But if I let anybody use them, that way I could get money from these people. <laughs> so they've come up with an adapter that you can plug into the J plug of your car, and it, then you can use the Tesla charging station two-pin、uh, kind of a connector to go in there. So you can kind of bridge the gap and sort of you know have this adapter so that you can charge at、uh, charging stations.、Uh, so all of a sudden there's. Eighty thousand new charging stations that people that don't have a Tesla can all of a sudden start using, and then the automaker said, "Well, this adapter is, you know, good, but wouldn't it be nice if we just had the plug so you could just plug in with the two-pin thing instead of the five-pin thing, and and be done with it." And the only time that the five-pin thing comes in handy is when you're doing something called a DC fast charge. 
So maybe I should back up a little bit and talk about the charging levels. We have something called level one, which is your ordinary wall outlet, 120 volts. And it would take all night long, basically, to charge a car. In fact, uh, my wife has what we call a plug-in hybrid, and it basically takes four or five hours to charge using a 120 volt, what we call level one charger that comes with the car. So um, that works great. Just plug it into the outlet and then, uh, you know, go to sleep, wake up in the morning and you're ready to go. But that's not good enough for some people. So they have a, what they call level two charger, which is more power, but you need a 240 volt outlet in order to do that. Some people have that in their garage for electric dryer. Um, some people don't. Most of the public charging stations that I've seen in supermarket parking lots and some companies have them in their company parking lot. And um, even people, um, you know, that um, you can get a portable one and just, you know, find somebody like in a RV park, you know, that has a uh, outlet for a, a motorhome. You can plug your um, 240 volt um, adapter that's similar to the one that comes with a car. You can buy them on Amazon or Home Depot or whatever. So you can get those level two uh, chargers for two or three hundred dollars. And at the level two, you, you have that five pin J plug. So um, companies like GM and Ford have announced that, you know what, we're going to get rid of that five pin uh, plug on our new cars. We're just going to go with the two pin plug. So the people at Tesla came up with a catchy uh, name for it. They call it the North American Charging Standard. And um, you can use it also for fast charging, DC fast charging. So you can charge a car in like 20 or 30 minutes if, if it'll allow you to do that. The Chevy Bolt EV it's limited on the amount of power you can put into it. So it's going to take about two hours to charge, even with a fast charger. But um, Tesla's and other cars like the Ford and uh, some of the newer GM vehicles like the Equinox that's coming out, they'll be able to charge in less than half an hour. Well, that's very good, right? Yeah. Half an hour, and, you'll go work out, come out, you're ready to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, you stop at a place and, you know, maybe you want to grab a bite to eat or use the facilities or whatever. So 20 minutes goes by pretty fast. Do you think we will have a power grid issues if we only use electric cars in electric homes? Yes. If we do nothing, there will be a problem. There's some neighborhoods right now where, you know, everybody has a Tesla. Everybody wants to charge at the same time. And so the transformer that they have up on the pole for that neighborhood can't handle that many people charging at once. So um, PG&E will typically spend a lot of money and upgrade the transformer to handle the load in that neighborhood. So you do have these little hot spots where it's a problem now and they have to spend money to fix it. Um, there's other ways around it. Um, for example, you know, you can have um, people that have solar on their roof. So they don't really use the energy so much from the um, PG&E. They just have um, something called a power wall that Tesla makes. So during the day, they have solar panels on the roof that charge up the batteries in the power wall. And then the power wall will provide power to charge the car anytime you want. Regardless, and you don't have any impact on the grid at all. So you're feeding it solar and you're drawing out what you would normally get from PG&E, but it's not from PG&E. It's from this, you know, battery storage that you have. So there's other ideas that uh, are coming out um, that uh, will, you know, um, allow you basically to program your car to charge at different times. So if everybody charges at once, it's a problem. But if you stagger the time that they charge, you kind of level it out a little bit. And then there's... Um, 
talk even of small nuclear power plants. I've heard of, you know, one or two uh, megawatt plants and then sprinkle them all around the country rather than these huge Diablo Canyon things that, you know, power hundreds of thousands of users. You know, this thing would do like one city and uh, that would provide enough electricity to make up for um, building another natural gas uh, or God forbid cold power uh, plant. And then the, the grid itself, um, you know, the wires that go between the power stations and the um, or the power plants and the customer, you know, the, the wires that they have for those things, they're limited capacity. So the idea of having a lot of smaller car, uh, charging stations kind of distributed rather than centralized and then run the energy over long distances, you know, just make it closer to where the usage is. Gary, in the beginning of the interview, you mentioned about clear air during the pandemic. Yes. And I understand Attorney General Rob Onda is suing the electric and gas company for misleading the public about climate change. What is your view on this? It's about time. For years, they've been misleading the public and they actually employ scientists and these scientists do special experiments and conduct uh, these evaluations and generate data and then publish these reports. And, you know, basically you can use statistics to prove anything you want. So they use the statistics to say, oh, well, you know, you know, the global warming would have happened anyway. You know, the ice age happens and global warming happens. You know, it's all related to, you know, natural cycles that have nothing to do with mankind. Well, finally, um, people have been able to get access to internal documents that are within the, the oil companies that, you know, admit that they're making up this stuff and it's really a lie. So finally, they got caught, you know. And so now they're being um, sued. We'll see what happens because, you know, the politics of the courts, you know, that could be influenced by lobbyists. And so it could go either way. But I think it's a good step. And rather than uh, making just uh, a company liable, you can't get a company to pay you anything. Um, it's not an individual. So they're actually going after the CEO, you know, individuals that they can sue by name. And also, I'd like to ask you if you can share your view on the Sony documentary film, Who Killed the Electric Car? Yeah, that was an interesting film. Um, I'm in about 10 seconds of that film. <laughs> What they did was, um, back in the days of the EV1, they said, you know, this car proves that an electric car can get people around and, you know, do your normal commute or whatever driving you do. And if you have charging stations along the highway, you can go great distances. For example, um, uh, Nissan uh, put charging stations all the way from Monterey up to uh, Lake Tahoe and Reno, I think even, all along uh, Interstate 80. And um, I think, you know, the local um, roads, you know, like 101 and 680 and 880 around the uh, Bay Area. So all the way from basically Monterey, you could drive and find a charging station like every 40 miles between Monterey and, you know, the Sierras. That kind of uh, shows that these things are practical. But the automakers were claiming, and at the time, they may have been right. I mean, um, the, the Toyota RAV4 that I'm driving right now was made in Japan by Toyota. It wasn't a conversion or anything. They made about 1,200 of these electric cars because at that time, The Air Resources Board said, well, if GM can do it, other people can do it. So we're going to require that 10% of all the cars being sold in California are zero emission cars. 
Otherwise, they can't sell any cars in California. We just won't let them do it. So the automakers said, well, you know, that doesn't sound right. You know, why penalize us? And so um, they said that the electric car that I have, the, the RAV4, they, they were selling it for $45,000. The gasoline version was selling for about $25,000. Same car, basically. And so they said, well, it's costing us $100,000 to make this car, and we're only selling it for $45,000, so we're losing money on every one. So the fewer we make, the better off we are. So they pushed back against the Air Resources Board and said, you know what, you know, we, we don't want 10%, we want less. So they, they said, okay, how about 8%? No, that wasn't good enough. How about 6%? Sorry, we're not interested, and we're not going to play your game. So um, they had lobbyists and, you know, they were going back and forth. So finally, they decided to have a hearing. In 2003, they had a hearing and they say, well, we'll take input from the public. That's me. <laughs> and we'll take input from the automakers. And we'll have this big meeting in Sacramento and we'll decide what to do with this mandate. So I actually drove my EV1 up there. Um, I ended up going part of the way, charged for a while, went all the way up to Davis, stayed in a hotel overnight, charged the rest of the way and drove into Sacramento in time for the meeting. And then I was told that, well, you know, you're going to be um, on the second day because we got so many speakers already lined up to give their testimony. So I said, OK, I'll stay another day. And so the automakers were allowed to go first and they put up their PowerPoint presentation saying how, you know, this was totally unfair. They couldn't do this and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so they would go on for a half an hour or an hour. And, you know, um, and finally, you know, it was the end of the first day and some of the uh, public speakers got to talk and, you know, they could talk for maybe five or 10 minutes. And then the, the moderator would say, okay, uh, your time's up. We have to get to the next speaker. So, you know, we had people from the Lung Association and, you know, nurses and school teachers and, you know, people that, uh, you know, had school buses, that, you know, were polluting diesel and all that stuff. Everybody had their chance to speak. And then finally, on the second day, um, they still had a whole bunch of people to go. So they were limiting people to like three minutes <laughs> at the podium. So um, I had prepared this uh, presentation that would probably take about 20 minutes. And so I basically threw that out and I looked up at the wall and I saw this big state emblem, you know, say Air Resources Board. And then underneath in kind of a big arc, they had uh, Environmental Protection Agency. So, you know, rather than my presentation, which there was no way I could get through it in time to make any coherent sense. I just off the top of my head, I said, it seems to me that most of the recent changes to the mandate have been designed to ease the burden on the automakers. You're supposed to be part of the Environmental Protection Agency, not the Corporate Profit Protection Agency. So that's my little part of the movie. But before that, they have people that were employees of GM that were the ones that would actually meet with the public and arrange the purchase of a car or the lease of the car. They didn't actually sell them. They only leased them. So these were the EV um, specialists and they would work to make sure that you got a charging station set up for your home and, you know, arrange the financing. In my case... Um, the electric in my garage was good enough for a dryer, but not for the car charger. So they said, you're going to have to spend $2,600 to run uh, new wires from the uh, circuit breakers in the back of your home to your garage. It's a 75 feet through the attic kind of a thing. And it's going to be $2,600. I said, eh, I don't know if I can afford that. They said, okay, we'll make you a deal. You pay the first 500 and we'll pay the rest of it. I said, okay, now we're talking <laughs> 
So that's when I got the GM EV1. Um, so these um, EV specialists, they were great at, you know, working things like that out to kind of, you know, support the thing. And we would have meetings actually at the PG&E headquarter of all the EV1 drivers. We would get together and meet there and have like a club meeting. And they called us 21st century test pilots. So it was kind of fun and exciting. And, you know, we had high hopes. But, you know, at this meeting, um, they just kind of were uh, making a big deal about the fuel cells, the hydrogen fuel cells. You know, um, you know rather than having all these requirements for, for us to make uh, zero emission cars with batteries, um, you know, we would prefer that you allow us to make uh, fuel cell cars instead. And then um, they had these different credits that they were using to kind of... Um, determine how many of these zero emission vehicles a automaker would have to provide in order to meet their diminishing requirement of 10 percent eight percent six percent two percent you know i think they started or finally ended up at around two percent anyway so they said well if you give us more credits for a fuel cell car because they're hard to make and they're expensive if you give us you know the credit for like 40 electric vehicles for one fuel cell car you know maybe then we'll be interested and so um then a car that would go on the freeway for maybe 100 miles, they would get seven credits for that. And then a car that would go, you know, 25 miles an hour in the neighborhood, kind of like, a you know, one of those gem cars that they used to sell at Costco. <laughs> we'll give you one credit for those. And then they had this crazy thing called PISA, Partial Zero Electric Vehicle. It, and you still see that emblem on the back of some cars these days. Um, Nissan Sentra was one of them. So what they claim was that... You know, um, in Los Angeles, we did some tests and uh, we measured the pollutants that came out of the tailpipe of the car compared to the air quality that the car was running in. And we actually have cleaner air coming out of the exhaust pipe than is going into the car. How could that be? You know, if you put a car in your garage and you turn the motor on and you close the garage door, you'll be dead in a few minutes. <laughs> So how could this be cleaner than the air around it? Well, they said, well, what we're measuring are these criteria pollutants. So there was a few of them that they would measure. And yeah, for those few pollutants, it would it would be true. But in general, it wasn't true and it would still kill you. So anyway, they said five of these gasoline cars that meet this requirement for these criteria pollutions will equal one credit. So you could buy or you could sell five Nissan Sentras and they'll give you one EV credit for that toward the amount that you're required to make to make 2% of your vehicles, uh, you know, zero emission or whatever. And in the end, um, they had a vote. All the uh, members of the Air Resources Board voted and um, they were all being influenced by lobbyists to a great deal. I think two or three of them weren't. They were kind of more sympathetic to the public. And um, so they voted to just basically throw the mandate out, come back in a couple of years with something else. And so they did. Now we have something else. <laughs> and finally, the something else is starting to make sense. I think Governor Newsom had a you know big uh, um, contribution to making that when he said by the year such and such, we need you know no more gas powered cars. So that's a long well, answer to your question. The gas cars still going to run after 2035. Would you foreseeing that gas station will turn partial gas and maybe partial charging stations? There is actually somewhere on the East Coast, there's a, what used to be a gasoline station. It's now electric car charging only. So uh, one guy, you know, just on his own, no government, uh, you know, influence or anything. He just decided, hey, you know, I could charge people to char a car, a plug in their electric car here. So I'll start doing that. 
And it's a real clean operation. The guy's got the 480 volt power coming into the gas station so he can charge a number of cars at once. And, um, you know, he doesn't worry about the fueling truck coming by every few days and, you know, filling up these underground tanks with gasoline anymore. And, you know, the the oil dripping on the, you know, cement <laughs> and stuff, all of that. So, you know, he's kind of a pioneer in that regard. And right now there's a lot of charging stations already, but with the amount of cars that are projected to be around when this thing becomes fully, um, you know, um, developed, um, it's not going to be enough. So President Biden has in the um, IRA, he has uh, put, I think, like one and a half billion dollars to, uh, you know, increase the number of charging stations so that, you know, it'll meet the needs. Because right now, you know, there's people that, you know, want to charge their car, but they have to wait for somebody to be done first, that kind of thing. Chris, tell us, how can people contact Electric Wellcoast Association? Well, we have a website. Um, we used to have a website that was Electric Auto Association. Now we have Electric Vehicle Association. So it's E-V-A-S-V. It stands for Electric Vehicle Association, Silicon Valley dot O-R-G. So if they go to that website, um, then we'll have some cute electric cars showing around on a, a racing track. And then on the top, there's different menus. <clears throat> so one of the menus is an info menu. And if you scroll down that menu, there's a contact us. So if somebody fills out the form to contact us, um, it comes directly to me. So that's one way. Um, there's another one along the, at the top of the website, all the way at the, the far right, or if your web browser is a little small, it'll show up on a second line. There's something called become a member. So the difference between that and contact us is become a member takes you to a different website called Club Express, where you can actually join our parent organization. The Electric Vehicle Association um, actually has uh, several dozen chapters throughout the United States. There's one up in Sacramento. There's one in San Jose. We got the Silicon Valley one. There's one in San Francisco called Golden Gate Chapter. So all these are local chapters. And so when you go to become a member, uh, I think it's $55 to be a, a member for a year. And then um, you pick a chapter to affiliate with. So if you pick the Silicon Valley chapter, then $10 of your $55 comes back to us. And then you get the monthly newsletter and there's all sorts of interesting events and um, information. You kind of stay up with the latest and greatest because it's a continually evolving um, scenario. This is probably one of the areas that we're going to have a dramatic change in the next 10 years, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely coming. And just get back on the hydrogen fuel cell things for a while. Um, there's a couple of problems with those. The, the, the biggest problem is the availability of the fuel. So what Toyota did, and I think um, Hyundai has something called a, a Nexus or something like that. So they have these fuel cell vehicles, and in order to run them, you have to use compressed natural gas. And so the tank is kind of bulky. So it, in some of the earlier ones, it took up half of the trunk. And it's a high pressure. It's like 10,000 pounds per square inch. Uh, you know, normally like a tire would be like 35 pounds per square inch. So we're talking several times the pressure in these tanks. So sometimes the tanks can leak. Um, there's been a couple of pl- times where the fueling stations caught fire. And there was one that had an explosion that blew a big piece of concrete all the way across the road and on the other side of the road. So there's the situations like that. 
And um, the number of vehicles sold, it's in the thousands, where the number of electric vehicles sold is in the hundreds of thousands. So the public is a little leery of the hydrogen for the most part. The, the ones that are sold, they kind of use sort of a, a, a bribe, if you will. What they do is when you buy or lease the car, they will give you three years of free hydrogen. Oh, that's a great deal. And they value that at $15,000. So after the three years are up, you're basically spending $5,000 a year out of your pocket to fuel these things. And with an electric vehicle like mine, I get the solar off the roof and uh, it puts money into or puts electricity into the power grid during the day. And then I draw it out at night, just like a bank account. You put money in the bank uh, one day and then you draw it out the next day. So I put electricity into the grid for my solar during the day and then I draw it out at night. Thank you, Jerry, very much for your insights and informative information today. Yeah, and there's a lot more. I've just scratched the surface. I know you just scratched the surface. We will follow you at Electrical Vehicle Association. Maybe we would learn more going forward. Yeah, we have a resources page, too, that have links to all sorts of other um, interesting websites, electric motorcycles and solar charging stations and places to find out what kind of a federal um, tax credit you can get and what are all the new models coming out and how far will they go, how much do they cost, and that kind of thing. Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Happy to, happy to be here. Thank <laughs> you. You have just listened to Tall Radio Podcast. For more podcasts, visit www.touchalife.org.